This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. We have fire escapes and stoops, and when it's summertime and it's hot outside and people don't want to be cooped up in their apartment, they'll make the front of the building their living room. And you'll see people posted up on milk crates and beach chairs. You'll literally see, smell a little bit of everything up here. Minorities in particular, immigrants in general, have had to create a life with whatever's been given to them. And when I see people sitting on their stoop of a building or hanging out in their fire escape, you would have probably hung out on your marquesina, which is your front porch in Dominican Republic, but you don't have that right now. And you have to make do. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. If I were to ask you where you're from, how would you answer? Would you focus on your hometown or your family heritage? Or do you hear that question and begin to think more philosophically, maybe about some of the experiences you've had that have shaped you? Today, I'm hanging out with Dominican-American Rich Perez, previously from Washington Heights in New York City, who now lives in Atlanta, Georgia. I had the chance to talk to Rich prior to the COVID pandemic when he was still a pastor at a New York City church. Rich has a complex and robust background. He is full of layers, and he has put a lot of work into understanding how these layers have shaped who he is and what he cares about. And maybe by hearing about Rich's experiences, you and I will walk away with a better understanding of where we're from or at least know what to look for as we consider our own layers. Here's Rich Perez as he tells us about his parents, about their journey to America as immigrants. You're listening to Where You're From. So my parents are immigrants from the Dominican Republic. My dad came here in 81, kind of set up shop. That seems to be the rhythm for most immigrants. You know, one of the spouse comes, they find work, they find a place to live, uh, and then they send for the rest of the family once they've got everything established. And so that was my parents' story. My dad came in 81. In 83, my mom and my older sister came, and then I came in 84. My parents moved into uh, a neighborhood called Washington Heights. Washington Heights is like this oasis for Caribbean immigrants. Most of them coming from the Dominican Republic, others from Cuba, Puerto Rico, which is its own complex relationship with the United States. And whenever you exist in a neighborhood like that, a place that's that most people are not from there, everyone lives kind of for each other. And, I, and to some degree, I think it was the, the birth of bodegas. These immigrants came in here and what they knew was produce. And so they set up shop, they start these convenience stores, uh, AKA bodegas. And everyone knows the, the bodega is kind of like this cultural hotspot. People go there, they, they're sitting on milk crates, they're playing dominoes when it's warm, they're sitting on the stoops. All that to say, I feel like because I was bred by that environment, 
it's hard to not care about things outside of my home. Of course, I cared for my home, my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother eventually. But I also loved, you know, Doña Maria from down the street. And I also loved Jose, who ran the bodega. And I also engaged with, you know, Ricky, whose mom took care of me when my mom was working overtime. Like, it just, it's difficult to not think of your life outside of the home or reduce it to just your nuclear home you know what i'm saying and so that was my upbringing uh but as i grew older it started to get more complex for sure uh because i realized that i was the product of a few things i was the product of immigrant culture but i was also the product of hip-hop and i was also the product of merengue and i was also the product of you know, arroz con habichuela, rice and beans, but I was also the product of uh, pizza and french fries. I was also the product of baseball, which is kind of the Dominican staple, but I was also the product of basketball, which is like the New York inner city, you know, Mecca uh, culture. And so it wasn't until about just a few years ago that I realized that that was an asset, that all those intersections were an asset. Uh, I didn't know that when I was a teenager. I saw that as an obstacle. Tell me a little bit about that. What what about that, you know, complex layer of influences felt like an obstacle? Ambiguity. I didn't know where I belonged. I didn't know what group I belonged to socially. You know, when I would visit family in the Dominican Republic and they would call me what's called a Dominican Joe, which is slang for, ah, you're kind of Dominican, but you're not. One, I wasn't born there, uh, and I was wearing baggy jeans. I had earrings. I had a tight fade. Those are not very Dominican things. And so you're a Dominican Joe. You're partly Dominican, but you're partly not. How did that feel? At the time, a little cool. It felt a little cool to be like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm not Dominican. Uh, not in the fullest sense. I'm, I'm, I'm something else, but I didn't know what that else was. Uh, but then it started to get a lot more complex because I started to feel outside. I remember one particular summer I visited for about three months. And I remember trying to play with the kids in the neighborhood out there in Dominican Republic and feeling like I can't really vibe with these kids. I can't really rock with them because they don't see me the way they see themselves. And they had no categories for me. And so, you know, when you don't have categories for people, you usually just marginalize them. And so I felt marginal to some degree. But then I came back here and I knew that I wasn't American in the fullest sense. I'll never forget, in eighth grade, I got accepted into a science and engineering program. I was kind of a geek, right? Me and two other students from our neighborhood got bussed down to Stuyvesant High School. And I just, I didn't see myself in anyone, in anyone. And um, I felt marginal there. Despite the fact that I had earned my spot into this program, uh, I still fell on the outside uh, because I couldn't see anyone that looked like me. And I certainly didn't see anybody that talked like me or engaged culture like I did. So I think the obstacle was ambiguity. The obstacle of living in between was not knowing who I belonged to. I didn't belong here and I didn't belong there. What happened next? Where did that take you? Uh, when I was about 12... My mom came to faith in Jesus. And so my mom becomes this matriarch in our family because she introduced us to a faith that was real enough to like live your life off of. 
When I was 15, uh, I made a decision to follow Jesus, was baptized. Was it just as simple as, okay, let me try out what mom's doing? Or was there something underneath the surface that was and that There was definitely that? some of, hey, my mom is showing us something new. I want to try what my mom's doing for sure. But there was also an element where it was where it was definitely my own experience because I had been sitting in church at a Spanish-speaking immigrant Southern Baptist church, which is kind of so much of my life straddled categories because you've got an, a very expressive culture in a very conservative, you know, religious, spiritual world. What was it at 15 then that made the quarter drop? to go, this is for me. I heard the pastor preach from Romans. He was talking about our need, but he was also talking about the comforting presence of God. And I said, I need this to be true. And you know what's really interesting about that is I grew up in a relatively good home, man. Like, you know, 67% of kids in my neighborhood grew up in a single parent home. 75% of those 67, it was the mom in the picture, not the dad. And I had both my parents. And they were both involved in our lives, mentally, emotionally. In fact, I think the fact that I had comforting parents, I attributed my parents' comforting nature to God. Wow. And so I, I guess that was the quarter dropping for me, so to speak. Uh, but that also set me off into this world where I had to figure out how to bring my world as an athlete, playing baseball, basketball, and my world uh, in faith now. There was this new thing that I had a lot of excitement about. Um, but didn't know where to insert it. Were there ways in which the sport athletic environment pushed against your faith commitments? Locker room banter, you know what I'm saying? Like locker room culture, like, man, the way that you talk about, you know, uh, women, the way that you talk about the coach, you know, the kind of slander that can sometimes happen. Like it's opposed to everything I was now trying to live counter to. And so... It, it was it was difficult. It was difficult living in that environment, and it got even more difficult in college. Okay, so you played basketball. I played basketball in college. I didn't play baseball. I played baseball in high school, and I played college. Okay, so you had game. I'd, I'd like to think so. <laughs> I'd, li I'd like to think so. <laughs> so you are playing basketball in college, feeling these two different worlds or values that you have of sport and yeah. com competition and faith kind of colliding, and then you say something changed. Yeah, something did change. Uh, let's see. I was about 1920 when I joined a group called Truce. And it was a, a performing arts ministry that traveled both uh, domestically and internationally doing uh, hip hop and theater. And that was headed by a guy named David Ham, Black dude from Virginia, moved up to New York pursuing theater. Uh, got his break in some off-Broadway shows and then eventually got picked up to do uh, executive directing for Truce, of which me and two other really close friends joined, Alex Medina and Andy Minio. Okay, something changes when you get exposed to Truce, right? Yeah. What changes? I realized that it was okay for me to blend my faith with things that I have passion for. And I think what I saw in Dave was this courage, this creativity, and this boldness to say, all of my life belongs to God, and I can blend all of my realities together under the purpose of offering it to God. And um, 
all of my life belongs to God every part of it and I think God wired me and designed me to have these passions and blend them with my world so we used to do these things called hit and runs which thinking about it now I'd probably name it something different but <laughs> we typically would go into like the center of like either projects this is all outside projects or estates is what they call them in in London we'd start playing hip-hop instrumentals and me, Andy, Alex, and this other guy named Keith, uh, we would just start freestyling. And once we had a crowd there, we would perform a few of our original songs. And we'd have one guy in the group that would break dance on Linomium floor. And, and I remember doing this in Hackney, London in 2006, which at the time had the highest rate of knife stabbings in all of the country. And I remember seeing all of the dudes from the block looking at us kind of confused because they looked at these young dudes that looked like they were probably from the street themselves, but they were doing hip hop and then they were talking about Jesus. I remember seeing them confused and thinking to myself, I like that you're confused. <laughs> I love this feeling of having you curious about what you're looking at. And I think that was the beginning of me embracing some of my intersections that for so long had confused me. And now as I started to blend them together, it started to confuse people. And, and I use the word confused really as curious. It started to make people curious. Oh man, that was giving me so much energy because it started to give me confidence to say, uh, Rich, you can blend your intersections. You don't have to compartmentalize who you are. You can start putting some of these things together. They connect. Wow. So it sounds like you have this experience, you travel these, you know, not only has the quarter dropped at this point, but now you're actually seeing it play itself out and you're seeing people respond. How does that take you to church planning in Washington Heights? So in my book, Mikasa Uptown, David Ham writes the afterword and he talks about this a little bit. He said, man, no matter where we traveled, Rich, his heart was always in Washington Heights. And this perhaps goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about my upbringing. It was just something about being in my neighborhood. It just drew me back. Um, I remember having a conversation with Andy and I said, hey, I'm, I'm coming back home and I'm going to start a church uh, in three years. And he was like, I'm all the way down. Just let me know. We came back. I, I worked as a high school teacher. Not a lot was clear. The only thing that was clear was that we wanted to start this church. I wanted to come back home and at least be the catalyst to a space that the 17, 16 year old version of myself could be in a place that was safe, comforting and celebrating. When we come back, Rich Perez will describe two of the most difficult challenges he's faced in his life and how these challenges rocked his world and his faith. I'm Rasul Berry, and you're listening to Where You're From. If you're enjoying Where You're From, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help, and keep listening for more of Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. 
There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. This is Mary Jo Clark, and I'm one of the producers for Where You From. And before we jump back into our conversation with Rich Perez, I wanted to share a teaser of our next episode with KB Newton. This is Where You From. People around the world, around our country, at their jobs, in their homes, in their friendships, in their relationships, are missing one another, are misunderstanding one another, are experiencing conflict and frustration and disappointment. And what it's doing is it's severing ties between people. People are getting divorced. Friends are not enduring through hardship together. Um, There's a whole cancel culture of like, if you do anything or say anything that I don't agree with or that offends me, I'm just going to cut you off and move on to the next person. This is Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. In just a moment, we will jump back into the show. But before we do, just a quick note that if you missed anything in today's show, check out the show notes. The show notes not only include today's talking points, but also links to connect with us on our socials via Twitter, Insta, and Facebook. And a free link to one of the episodes of a seven-part docuseries I did called In Pursuit of Jesus. At the end of the linked episode, I spend some time with Rich Perez in his old neighborhood, and we talk a little bit about faith, culture, and Jesus. This episode is available to you for free. Just click on the link in the podcast description or visit whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Now back to the show. Rich Perez grew up suspended between worlds. His life had layers. He was a Dominican and an American, a nerd and an athlete. And around his teenage years, his mom became a Christian, adding another layer of experience. She became what he called the matriarch of the family as she led by example and taught her kids about Jesus. Many years later, Rich's mom was diagnosed with a serious form of cancer. And that's where we will pick up the story. Here's Rich Perez as he describes one of the most difficult moments of his life. You're listening to Where You're From. Got married in July 29, 2007. Uh, My mom at this point had been diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is a cancer in the spinal cord. She had been in remission. Uh, my mom passed on August 8th, a week and a half after my wedding. We, in fact, we had just gotten back from our honeymoon and a few days later she had passed. Yeah, I think it rocked my faith in a variety of ways, man. I just think I had more questions about what God was up to. Like, what are you up to? You know, uh, why would you allow this? I, I mean, I hate to say it so uh, flippantly, but kind of the typical questions that people have in loss and in grief, like, why, why now? Why didn't you act? What's the purpose? What are you doing up there? Right? Yeah, and this was the woman that had 
committed her life to Christ. It, like you said, had that matriarch influence, impact, matriarch yeah. impact of the whole family, and like, and so that which seemed to add another level of why to it. Like oh, she was this beacon. So how did you get on the other side of that? Can I be honest? Yeah, I think sometimes it's still hard. I would be lying. If I said that at 13 years later, I'm completely beyond this. I've kind of needed sadness and grief to stick around a little bit because sadness has helped me to honor legacy. And I don't mean sad as in a debilitating sadness. Obviously, I went on to plant a church. I went on to have kids i i've done quite a bit that have you know are just like yo i'm I'm not debilitated by this sadness but sadness has kept me honest with the legacy i've leveraged sadness to say no i i honor what my mom has done and there's this there's still this level of sadness that i carry with me that i'm actually not mad that i still have it yes you know what i'm saying i don't know if that makes some sense no that does make sense and it relates to this aspect of place because it 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 honors a place that she still has in your life right like that that place is you know the the empty seat that she used to sit in it's valuable to see and remember that she used to yeah. when i think about it i think there is a part of me that grows sad but there's also a large part of me that's like but man, she did such a thing for my faith and God used her to do such a thing for my faith. So you still hold that with you. Yeah, yeah. And yet you got from a place of the devastation and the confusion. Right, that's the other side of that. Yeah, that's the other side a of a place of, okay, now it's time to move on and do this 100%, work. 100%, yeah. Like what yeah. contributed to that? What contributed to that? Accountability. I got really close to this professor and he said to me, he said, Rich, well, you know, death is really difficult. But death is typically more about those that are left behind than the ones that pass. And I remember sitting with that almost offended, like, yo, you tripping, bro? Like, what are you t- what are you saying right now? <laughs> but then realizing that he was trying to keep me in that moment accountable to like, what are you going to do? Your mom clearly left a huge impact. Like, how will you honor her with your life? And I think to some degree, this is what this professor was doing is like, this is about what God is trying to do in you now. And then I started to gain some relationships that really honored my emotions. And uh, I realized that my feelings were kind of like gateways to what God was trying to do in me. Um, this is why I said what I said about sadness. I, I began to really embrace the sadness around losing my mom and it allowed me to grieve well. Okay. So now, you know, you have the epiphany of like, wait, God wants to help me infuse and integrate my faith with my culture. You have this perspective of, of, of loss and that and purpose and meaning in the midst of that. And now you have this wife and this education. And so now you're about to go and do your thing and, and, and plan the church that at a pretty young age starts to make some pretty big waves. What do you think about those experiences kind of got materialized in the birth of the church plant? At this point, a lot of things start melding together for me. I start to see the purpose of my intersections socially, culturally, ethnically, spiritually, mentally. And like all these things start to say, oh, these things, I'm a whole person. 
I'm not a disintegrated person. I'm a whole person. And God seems to sit at the foundation of all these different intersections. And so we're having these dinner parties and they begin to reflect a lot of these intersections. I mean, we've got, we're getting people here that are kind of like from the inner city sports world. We're starting to get people that are uh, mostly black and brown, having navigated their own identities, ethnically, culturally, racially. We've got some folks that have never been part of a church environment, loosely know uh, religion and spirituality. And then others that are like, yeah, I'm just coming from another church. Or, you know, people that are deeply wound into church culture and they're, we're kind of meeting at our house for dinner parties and Mark, because that's what we're reading through the book of Mark. And then from one week to the next, we went from 10 people to about 35. The week after that, we had close to 50 and say, yo, this is a, a fire hazard. We can't do this in our apartment anymore. And I looked over at Andy, who had just recently moved out of our house and into an apartment in the neighborhood. And I said, hey, can you lead a Bible study? Take half these people with you to start a, another Bible study at your crib. And he's like, let's do this. You know. Then his group started to blow up. And then he had to split that group in, a, in a, like two, two months. And so we had three groups. And those three groups were kind of like crying to see each other. And then we decided kind of reluctantly to have a Sunday service. Why reluctantly? That's usually what a church planner dreams I know, about. I know. I think I was just reluctant because I didn't feel like all the pieces were there, primarily leaders. I think we had people that were down, you know, down for the cause, but I wanted to spend more time developing some some people that could like carry this out. And I think it was just, you know, me, Andy and my wife. Um, but then Easter 2012, we had our very first service. And what did that look like? We were in a boxing gym. <laughs> we were in a boxing gym because that's the only space we could find. And it was great. Okay. Like, wait. So just paint the picture for us. You walk in and what so do you So you see? walk in and to your left is a small room where we had our children. And then the rest of the space was the ring at the center, which is where we set up from. Um, so that's the stage. That was the stage. The ring was the stage. It took about an hour and a half to get all the ropes off. So I wouldn't have to do like the <laughs> climbing into the ropes. <laughs> that actually would be kind of a it cool It would picture. be. It would be. I was also never short of analogies. And I was just, you just got to get in where you fit in. Particularly minority churches that don't have a lot of economic, you know, uh, resources being in a lot of multi-use space because you know it's 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 the school but it's the church but it's the office you know because you just you you have to you have to figure out how to do space um it's 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 always a shared space very seldom is it not a shared space and you're kind of always working on space are there any benefits to having to negotiate oh 100 you're in someone's space so you're forced to have relationship with that someone. And I think this is actually really helpful to the evangelical church in the United States because we're very isolationist. We want to create spaces of our own, but sometimes that also means for our own. And that often can mean a tendency to isolate ourselves from the rest of the world. Sharing space and being in other people's space has forced us to say, what are y'all doing that we can get behind? 
Um, is there a program that's mentoring kids that we can have our people volunteering? Because I'm sure y'all could use people of great character to be mentors, right? You may not be able to share your faith explicitly, but you could be a, a model of good character to those kids. You know what I'm saying? So I think being forced to share space with people has forced us to see the common good that community leaders and organizations who are not people of faith are already doing in your world. And how, what's been the reception to you offering those I, type of people? I think it's been great. I think it's been great. It's made for people in the community saying, I don't agree with what they believe, but man, they're doing great work in the city, in our neighborhood. I think committing ourselves to seeking the good of a, or of a, of a neighborhood or of a place will undoubtedly foster curiosity in people. Have same, you seen that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The same way that I think doing excellent work causes curiosity, the same way that I think doing beautiful art causes curiosity in people. And I think that that's kind of the evolution of evangelism. Like, I think those are the ways that we evangelize. So you, you mentioned something in your book. You said we will need a faith that draws strength for the journey from the greatest, and I'm not going to say how this, Remescla story. Yeah, you got it. Jesus. Yeah. What is a Remescla story and how does Jesus embody this love for people, this love for your city, yet this redemptive thread? Remescla is essentially a word used to describe someone that's made up of various things, like a gumbo soup, you know, like there's just a whole bunch of things in there. And for me, the Remescla was, I am the mixture of Dominican immigrant American inner city culture. That, that's what I, that's the soil that produced me, so to speak. And um, add to that all the other intersections and identities that I seem to carry, you know, that I've mentioned all throughout this conversation. For a long time, I didn't see that as an advantage until God started to help me bridge and integrate all of my intersections. And then even more profoundly, how I started to see Jesus as a remezcla. There is no person in all of scripture and in all of human history that has perfectly straddled, almost quite literally, two worlds. Jesus is a remezcla because he represents both heaven and earth. In fact, he calls himself the door. The door to what? The door to these two different worlds. Jesus is the door by which earth can meet heaven. As a Dominican American who has lived for so long in the in-between of two different cultures and two different worlds, Jesus is so comforting to me because he shows me that he brings together two worlds. And that started to, as I started to realize that, and of course, as I wrote that in the book, I started to be so much more empowered to say, this is my place. You're right, I don't fully belong there. And you're right, I don't fully belong here, but I don't see that as a disadvantage anymore. Wow. I see that as a spiritual, emotional, and social advantage. I'm gonna create this category. I'm gonna show you that we can thrive without your traditional categories. Right. And I think there's a whole generation of people, even outside of Hispanics, I think this is particularly true of third culture kids that are trying to figure out their parents' world and the world in front of them. They've spent so much time trying to fit into both of these, not realizing that God has uniquely placed us in this social location 
to show that flourishing and thriving can happen there. And if someone's listening and they find themselves being kind of the third culture, uh, cultural translator, you have to find the ways in which you are going to be empowered to be that bridge. Because when you're talking about a community where you have natives and locals that are kind of living on the margins and newcomers that are coming in, not everybody wants the same thing. You have to use your social location to be the bridge between those two worlds to at least get them into dialogue because they're not going to talk to each other for a variety of reasons, probably because they don't want to. The very heart of what the church is trying to do, we're trying to paint a third picture, not the picture of displacement and not the picture of rejection, not letting any newcomers in. We're trying to find this third picture that says, hey, can we collaborate and partner together to show that we can coexist, that classes can coexist, that races can coexist, that ideologies can coexist to some degree. I don't think fundamentally it's a, a race. I think it's a class thing. Okay. It's really challenging to create this synergy that you talk to when there's any degree of paternalism. And by paternalism, I mean like a incessant bend to exist in and over particular groups of people. Okay. Very difficult to have synergy and create synergy when there's a degree of paternalism and a, and a deep lack of humility. We don't need paternalism. We need partnership. Yeah. We don't need control. We need collaboration. Yeah. But if humility is missing and if paternalism exists, if you're coming in with that particular posture, then it's really hard for you to know that you need them as much as they need you because you don't see me as necessary to your own flourishing. You only see yourself as necessary to my flourishing. Yeah, that's good. And, and one of the key things I've seen with that is the tendency to assume that I have the answers and the right diagnosis of what the problem is. Mm. And so therefore, here's a solution. And that problem never really includes me. It's just things that are happening 100%. Out, you know, over there. But that affects the way that you think about how you spend your dollars. Yeah. That affects your empathy. That affects your compassion. Because listen, if I know that I need you, if I'm, if I'm the more affluent and I know that I need you, the less affluent, socially, economically affluent, I mean, I need you at my dinner table. But that's a fundamental worldview shift. So that's why you can't come in here as a newcomer giving charity. We don't need charity. We need solidarity. We don't need charity. We need somebody to link on with us so that when we're falling, they feel the fall of that. You know what I'm saying? Abundance confuses us. <laughs> abundance leads, uh, for those of us that really enjoy abundance, and you could, you could put that in food, e economy, however you wanted to, but abundance confuses your stomach to think that you have all that you need. And it gives you the the luxury of creating margin from you and the margins. So if I have the luxury, whether by my wealth or my power, to create space between me and the hurting, then anything I ever do with the hurting or the marginal is just charity. I am at a safe distance. Why do you think the priest and the Levite walked on the other side of the road? They created a safe distance from the hurting 
to say, oh, that's unfortunate, but not enough to say, oh no, we need to do something. And what I love about that, the Good Samaritan story is that, notice, first of all, the Samaritan is the religious other. Just to say, that's just a point of, something to point out there. He's the religious other, and the text says that he came up close. Okay. Proximity offered him a vantage point to the hurt that the other guys couldn't get when they crossed over to the other side of the road. Yeah. They only saw the hurt from a distance. Yeah. The Samaritan saw the hurt from up close because it says he walked up close and saw his wounds. We need people, if they're gonna come into the neighborhood, particularly inner city, low income neighborhoods, they have to come up close to the wounds. Yeah. They have to come up close to the ways that, you know, the engine of urban planning is hurting groups of people. And that is going to radically change the way that you look at your resources. It has to. It has to change it. Because it did with Jesus. It did with he Jesus. He who was rich became poor so that we who were poor could become That's rich. That's right. And it changed the way that the Samaritan used his resource. If you look at the end of the story, he used his oil, he's used his water, and he said, if anything more you need, put it on my tab. There was a shift his uh, vantage point of the wounds was so impactful to him that it changed the way that he used didn't his resources. Didn't ask why were you there, and didn't ask what, what was it his fault. He didn't need to. He was he was <laughs> he was already close enough to see all he needed to see in order for him to shift the way that he used his resources. So I think that's proximity's huge. You've got to be close enough to feel the pain for yourself in order for you to actually make some significant. Uh, contributions to existing in this neighborhood. Back in February 2020, I interviewed Rich Perez about his church community in the Washington Heights neighborhood of New York City. We caught up again with Rich in the summer of 2021 because of how dramatically his life changed during the COVID-19 pandemic, which ravaged New York City. With the help of his wife, friends, and church family, Rich was able to walk through one of the hardest seasons of his life. You're listening to Where You're From. Well, Rich, uh, we originally started this conversation at the end of February 2020. A few things have changed since then. Uh, about a month after that, something called the coronavirus ended up shutting down the city and just changing life as we know it. I'm curious, how did that hit you? Because when we were sitting there talking, we had no idea that in several weeks things were going to be so different. When did you realize that this moment that we would soon experience was going to be one that was uh, very life-changing? Man, yeah, quite a bit has changed. That's a really good question. I got a text message from our ministry coordinator saying, hey, I have a family member who's contracted the virus. They're not doing really well. Can you pray? And I think that was kind of the beginning of several moments like that, that made the coronavirus, or at that point, what we just knew as a virus, to kind of be a really big deal. Not long after that text message, I got a text message from our then associate pastor and our administrator saying, hey, I think we need to consider, you know, having virtual service. We were not, as young a church as we were, we were not prepared for a digital shift. You know, we were very in-person kind of church. We, we kind of thrived off of kind of small, intimate community, but weren't really 
super prepared for it. So I remember saying, okay, let's just give this Sunday a, a try. I can't even remember what Sunday that was. I know it was sometime in March. And so we did, and we kind of played it by ear. We did that Sunday, we did the next Sunday. And then we realized, no, this is gonna be pretty long term. And But those were the beginnings of things really sh shifting for what would be the, the next 12 months. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting when you talk about that there was some almost connection you were making of of almost like a shared sense of uh, trauma or, or or just grief. Yeah, I think you said it. I think trauma. We would end up losing 100,000 lives to this mm -hmm. virus. New York City, at one point of, of the pandemic, being the epicenter of death and loss and grief. But then you would lose life. You would have to grieve the loss of life as you knew it. And, you know, I think you add to that the layers of, of you know, social unrest the disproportionate impacts of the pandemic on people of color, communities of color, like it's a compounded grief, man. And, not, mm -hmm. and that, that's only to mention 2020. That's not to mention how we came into pandemic. Right. You know right. what I'm saying? So I, I think all of it was even heavier to the fact that we didn't know this was going to happen. You know, the, the surprise element of the right. pandemic. Yeah. So how did you see that grief, that trauma play itself out in your community? I'll speak personally, and then I'll speak from a community standpoint. Personally, we just, you know, we had a few people in my family that contracted the virus. None that passed away, but some that were physically had long-term impacts on their respiratory system. Hmm. But also, personally, the loss of life as we knew it. For places like New York, and you know this well, Rasul, like we learn to live in 600 square feet. We learn to live in 700 square feet. But I think the pandemic aggravated mm. what it means to live in such a dense city. From a community mm. standpoint, you know, we, Washington Heights, Inwood, deals with a lot of food insecurity. We don't, as a community, see a lot of fresh produce. If there is, it isn't financially accessible. So you have a lot of people that deal with food insecurity, a lot of families that deal with food insecurities, a lot of people that suffer from cardiovascular diseases, hypertension, diabetes, that became more vulnerable in pandemic. I and mean, we saw a lot of people die in our neighborhood because of the virus, because they didn't have access to this or, you know, because of food insecurity, needed to find themselves on a soup kitchen line in the height of pandemic, contracting the virus. I mean, there was a lot of implications to a neighborhood like ours when the pandemic hit. And then as the church, you know, the loss of service, you know, and we had to learn how to live together virtually. That was mm. that was new. That, yeah. that was strange. That's a phenomenon that I don't think any of us were deeply prepared to emotionally. You know, some churches were they were able to pivot virtually really easy, but I don't think any church was prepared mentally, emotionally and spiritually to deal with the repercussions of a virtual community. Mm. And so I think we just had to hold all of those things in tension while still trying to be a beacon of hope in the community right. that needed food, that needed hope. You know, like all of these things, we had to think creatively about service and generosity. I mean, and I can just speak from the other side of the city in Brooklyn, April 2020 felt like an apocalypse hmm. in New York City. It felt like Armageddon. Like it just, 
the sea numbers of thousands of people dying a day, like at one point, 2,000, 3,000 people dying a day. That's like a 9-11 each day. Elmhurst, Queens became the epicenter of New York City's death toll. Right. And I never experienced that level of just intensity when you just, just to go outside felt like you were gambling with yep. your life, you know? Yep, yep. I mean, listen, that was us. And it, it did feel very apocalyptic, New York did, especially knowing in the back of your head that thousands of people were dying daily. And I think this became even more daunting when we started looking into the, you know, the, the prison community and, and a lack of access they had to safety and care. And there was at one point an island dedicated in New York. I can't remember if it was off of Roosevelt Island or off of uh, Ellis Island, but there was a small little island dedicated to just bringing dead bodies um, at one point. And, you know, I remember watching that little clip and saying like, where's this going? This is, this is really scary. You know? Yeah. So, you know, that kind of takes us to through the height of just the crisis and fortunately things didn't stay there. And as things moved forward, like walk us through how you were processing, okay, what now? What next? Well, man, you know, that May, June, July season, it was just harder to lead the church, honestly, like through the pandemic, thinking about organizationally, how to help our community shift healthily. It was a real challenge mentally and emotionally for me to lead the church at that time. Late June, one of our dear sisters who had been battling cancer for about eight years, I mean, since she joined the church, came to faith at the church, got really sick. She didn't have access to her chemotherapy because of the complications and the policies of the hospitals. Anyways, all that to say, not too long after she passed away from cancer, it was a really, really difficult loss on me personally and on her husband, of course, and the community. Really, really sweet girl, successful uh, in her career, very young. She was 28. Mm. Um, and she passed away. And, you know, needless to say, it was a huge blow to the community. And I was there in those moments, in her last moments with her husband. And it, I think now in hindsight, I, I underestimated the impact of that moment on me mentally and emotionally, being there, seeing her take her last breaths, assuring her of her faith and, and the promise that Christ has for her in the midst of this really difficult moment. She died on a Monday and we buried her on a Saturday. That Sunday, I hit a emotional mental wall. I was rushed to the ER. Um, with high blood pressure and certain that something was terminally wrong with me. Um, mm. I went to the ER and I was checked and thankfully the reports came back clear. I had a CAT scan done. Anyways, that would set the course for the next several months. But to answer your question, as the pandemic started to feel more under control, something else was uh, you know, coming to the surface more personally for me, that would then set the course for the rest of 2020. Yeah, no, nah, I mean, you can just continue. Like, how was that course set? And obviously, just, you know, what would you like us to yeah. know about 
that. Yeah, yeah. So came back from that ER visit, which was very scary. I mean, this was the day after we buried our sister, Alice. And, you know, I think so much was running through my head. So much was running through the minds of my kids. It was a really, really kind of traumatic moment heading to the ER, leaving my kids behind, not knowing if I was going to see them again. And I would go on to go to the ER probably five more times in the next seven weeks with high anxiety, almost paralyzing anxiety, uh, wondering if something was wrong with my head because I was feeling a lot of head discomfort, a lot of throat discomfort, a lot of stomach, abdomen discomfort, wondering if something was wrong with me. Again, something terminally wrong with me and the doctors not being able to find it and that kind of building on my anxiety. I had gone on a two month leave and I was just home. I was just home at, the, at this. We were also moving from our apartment to the Bronx for kind of a temporary shift. We needed something bigger. I, I don't know what would have been of us having to deal with a pandemic, everything that I was going through mentally and emotionally in a 600 square foot apartment. I'm not really sure how that would have turned out, but we moved into a much, much larger apartment. One of our members was able to find it for us. And I was, man, listen, from all of August, all of September, I was just at home, mostly in bed. You know, there were nights where, you know, we were just laying on the couch. I had my son to my right, my daughter to my left. And it was probably one in the morning. And my wife was just looking at me like, hey, they got to go to bed. And I'm like not wanting them to go to bed because I wasn't sure if, if I went to sleep, I would wake up. Mm. My, my anxiety was really, really high. Mm. I just didn't know what to do with all of it. And, you know, I want to say that I was very spiritually disciplined during that time and that, you know, I, I got myself under control through prayer and scripture reading, but it wasn't a, it, that that's just not true. Like it just wasn't true. I was, I was very, very paralyzed by my anxiety. And I will say I was often in prayer, but it was very messy. It was a very messy time of prayer, whether it was my weeping, the entire time of prayer, weeping before God, or whether it was uh, desperate cries for his grace and help. Like, it was just messy, man. Like, whether it was in my room, whether it was in the shower, I was a mess. And, and I think in hindsight now, I'm thankful for those moments of prayers mm. because I had a place to go to. I really felt like a mess. I felt like the man who beat his chest at the mm. synagogue and said, I'm not worthy, you know, kind of, kind of prayers. But anyways, those two months led to a lot of conversations with my wife, which ultimately led to two major decisions. The first decision was to transition from the lead role at the church that we had started 10 years ago. And then after several more conversations, once we brought this to the staff and to our advisory board of the church, that ultimately led to the decision of closing the church down. And we gave ourselves to the end of the year, uh, December 27th. 2020 was when we had our last service. And so I'll fast forward it a bit, but man, listen, there's a lot to that decision, a lot of mental exhaustion, thinking through family, thinking through what's best for the church family, thinking through what's best for me mentally, emotionally, physically, trying to really discern what God wants. Is this a failure on my part? But ultimately by December, we ended the church. We had our last service. I recorded it virtually. It, it happened virtually. 
mm. uh, we couldn't even have an in-person service to really really say goodbye to the church it was it was difficult man it was difficult i think it continues to be difficult uh but certainly not as much as it was back in december yeah no i, I think that there's so much there that you hit on that is so significant i think one you know it's interesting when you talk about that kind of messiness that you were in and i think about in Romans 8, when it talks about the spirit intercedes for us with groans that are too mm. deep for words. And I get that picture that sometimes all we we don't have the words, right? We we don't know how to pray. And there's just being a place of rawness, of brokenness. Like I, I love what David writes in Psalm 51, you know, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, you will not despise. And so, yeah, you're right that sometimes there's a certain veneer of appropriateness that people yeah, uh, yeah. feel like one must maintain at all times to show a certain level of spiritual maturity but that's not what the scriptures reveal we see it in the garden with jesus literally praying you know till sweats of blood you know what i mean kind of you know came out like that's not a that's that's duress that's mm-hmm. that's, that's stress in the highest levels so, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's something that we need to be more aware as part of the spiritual journey. And then that other aspect of departures. And I only want to ask you this because I know that there can be an unsettlingness that people can hear when folks kind of refer to what um, Dr. Henry Cloud refers to as necessary endings. Yep. Um, but how did you become okay with recognizing that God's hand was in ending something that at least when we think about it from a spiritual standpoint ought to never end, right? Like, you know, should go on until Jesus comes back, even though that's not even the history of the church and the Bible in terms of local (laughs) church, but that's still a a vision and an idea that we hold sometimes. That's a conversation in and of itself. I think the answer might be twofold. One is I'm not sure that I know just yet. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure that I've fully arrived there. Okay. In other words, like saying that I'm okay with it. Uh, I think I'm still wrestling with that. I think I've grown to be more okay with it than I was back in, you know, October, November, and then of course, December when we ended. But I don't think I'm fu- I've fully arrived there. The other part of that, the answer to that question is, it was very apparent it needed to end. At least my time. You know, I think the church closing was more consequential to that first decision, but it was very apparent, man. My body was reacting. And, you know, I've, I've said this several times already with friends that there were two prophets that were speaking very loudly in this season for God. And that was my wife and my body. Two prophets that I think a lot of ministers, in my experiences, a lot of pastors don't give a lot of attention to. You know, I, I, I know a lot of guys that would say that their wife has a really unique voice in the decisions that they make for the church, but practically it doesn't always show to be true. And my wife was very loud, like, hey, I think it's time. Like, you, you've done well. It's, you need to stop. You know, you need to transition from this. And and then in conjunction with my body kind of flaring up and reacting to all the stress and all the things that I was holding, I was just like, okay, God, I, I, I hear you through your prophets. I hear you through through what you're saying. And so 
you know, I think those two angles were very, very important for me to listen closely to. But I would also say, man, that I think I was very terrified of endings. And I think it, it forced me to really ask why. Why am I so afraid of things coming to an end? And I think what I found is several things like, you know, a lot of that has to do with a lot of my own family history and trauma and things that I've not fully healed from as far as, you know, experiences that have had traumatic endings. Endings, for the most part, happen to us. They just happen to us. We don't actively participate with endings. They just kind of happen to us for the most part, you know, someone passes away. Don't no one actively participate in when passing away. You kind of just look up and you realize, whoa, you lost this person, yeah. right? And I think what I was hearing from the Lord in those months were, hey, this is gonna end and I want you to be a part of it. I want you to participate in this. Mm, um, wow. I think I was terrified of that because historically endings just happened to me against my will most of the times, if not all of the time. And I think the sweet but very terrifying invitation I was hearing from God was, this is gonna end, but I'm giving you the invitation to be a part of it. Mm. I leaned into it as terrifying as it was. And when I tell you, I leaned into it like shaking. I mean that almost literally, like mm. I was shaking every time I leaned into the idea of my time as a pastor at this church that we gave so much to coming to an end. I like, I, I was visibly shaking at that. And then the idea of the church, I was emotionally, mentally shaking at that thought because I think one of the tragedies, if I can put it that way, that I think most pastors fall into is that their role as a pastor, and this is not an indictment on, on us as pastors, but I think an awareness is that the role as a pastor becomes so deeply wound up in our own identities that whenever you do get the call to transition from this, the work is almost surgical. Mm. The work yeah. is surgical to remove this role from your identity. Yeah. And man, I can't tell you how many times over the course of those months, my wife needed to remind me, like, you are not a pastor. Like, God called you to function as a pastor. You served in the role of a pastor in this church for this season. But your identity is not founded in this activity. Like, your identity is founded in the activity of God through Jesus that now calls you a son. You are a son before you're a pastor. Yeah, man, that's such a great way to put it too, that sense of the surgery that's needed to, uh, I think about in Hebrews four, where it talks about the word of God is sharper mm -hmm. than any two-edged sword, able to divide between, you know, the thoughts and intentions of the heart, right? Joint marrow and muscle and bone and, and that bone aspect and marrow, of- soul and spirit, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's sometimes the type of precision needed to separate us from what we do, like who we are and what we do. And so in that sense, it's, there's a certain beauty, a, a painful beauty. And I, and I thought about, you know, you sharing earlier about, you know, the significant monumental loss of your mother and how that had such a significant impact on you. And then to kind of almost see that trauma get relived in the passing of this person that you were now a spiritual parent over and, and, mm. and that that mm -hmm. kind of, and neither of those losses were things that you would have wanted, but that were very destabilizing and, and, and debilitating and but to get to a place 
of actually leaning into a loss and ending and, and seeing it as necessary, there's a unique kind of healing in that of, of like, you don't have to run away from and be afraid from endings. Like it reminds me of this poem by uh, Robert Frost, Nothing Gold Can Say. It goes, uh, nature's first green is gold. Her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf mm. subsides to leaf. So Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day. Nothing gold can stay. And yeah, that's great. You know, just that that aspect of he's dealing with the temporalness of life and the sense of that it doesn't stay long, but and yes, we 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 talk about a crown that's imperishable and a faith that will 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 come to us. But part of the beauty of that is in its contrast to that which we lost. But the 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 thing about your story, and I think this is probably a cool place for us to catch up fully, is because it's not just about loss and ending, but yeah. but a necessary ending always leads to a new beginning. How have you seen that new beginning play itself out in your life? Yeah, I appreciate this question because it does balance out the experience. <laughs> and it does show that everything starts in the dark, right? Like the seed in the ground, the baby in the womb, and Jesus in the tomb. Everything begins in the dark before it actually sees the light. And I think this is why in Jewish culture, the day begins at night, not in the day. And so it shows this beautiful cycle that though things are dark and perhaps even begin in the dark they don't stay that way and so you know having made the decision to transition from the church uh, as the lead pastor making then subsequently the decision to close the church we'd also made the decision to transition from the city which is an ending in itself but we made the decision to transition from new york city and to move to atlanta the decision to come here was solely based on relationship you know, you guys can't see this, but I'm still rocking my Yankees hat. So yes. <laughs> you know, I'm still a New Yorker through and through, but coming out here was based on relationships. We have a ton of family and friends that live here. And we knew that in this next season, we were going to need that. But, you know, not to make this a long-winded answer, but I do think that the biggest form of birth for us as a family has come through the journey of now, loving each other, husband, wife, parent children children parent loving each other as our sacred prayer like i can't stress enough how much god has shown me in these last several months that like to dope over my kids and to fawn over my wife is in fact a prayer to god and it's my prayer of thanksgiving that i'm very thankful for you know, the 18 plus years that I have with my wife and that I have a, you know, soon to be teenager in the crib and that to love them well, to serve them well, to pay attention to them and to care for them in a way that I just, from a human capacity, did not have the time to do it in the way that I wanted to because I was also loving, you know, a hundred plus people in the church that I'm using this season of my life now to fawn over my wife and to dote over my kids in a way that says, God, this is my prayer to you. Like, I'm just so thankful that I can do that. And, and that feels very much like a rebirth. Personally, I've found the freedom to explore how to reimagine myself. You know, for 15 years, even prior to CCF, 
you know, I pastored and I loved every second of it. I love teaching. I love telling stories. I love surprising people with the story of God and how it connects to their lives. Like that was just what I loved doing. I loved listening to people. I loved helping people discover themselves and in the process, discover God. I loved every second of it, but I am now going into this new season and I'm saying, yo, is it okay for me to say that I don't want to pastor? Like, is that an acceptable thing to say? Not because I'm jaded or tired, at least not fundamentally, but because I think it's okay to reimagine yourself while still functioning in the gifts that God has given you. And so, you know, I'm currently not pastoring anywhere. In fact, I currently don't have a job. I'm just at home and I'm just, you know, chilling with, with Anne and the kids. I'll do some speaking here and there. And I've got some speaking engagements lined up for the rest of the year that I love because I love to preach. But I'm not pastoring in the in the way that I had been for the last 15 years. And I think slowly I'm growing to be okay with that. Again, that surgery is still happening. That surgical process is still at play. Yeah. And I think we aspire, oftentimes we aspire, especially if you're young, which I was when I started the church, a young, young pastor, we aspire to be the things that we see most celebrated. Mm. So yeah. if I see that, pastors are being celebrated for 30, 40, 50 years of ministry, then I go into ministry thinking, well, this is what I got to do if I want to be celebrated. I got to yeah. be here for the long haul and I've got to retire a pastor or I never retire. I'm always, you know, I'm always a pastor. And so I think even making the decision to transition from the church and transitioning from this role has brought a lot of shame. And I've had to process and lean into that shame and try to hear what those feelings are trying to tell me about myself and about God. And I think I'm growing more slowly okay with, no, you can do this. It's okay. Yeah. Well, man, the interesting thing is as you have talked about this difficult and hard, dark season, I've seen you actually come to life and kind of even talk about it in a more energized way in terms of the lessons that you've learned. Would you say that you've gotten past the emotional wall? And if so, how did you do that? Man, that's a great question. I want to say yes, that I feel like I've got I've gotten past the biggest emotional mountain. Mm. But I think there are still a flurries of little hills. Got it. If I can, you know, yep. visualize it that way. Having climbed that mountain and or I should say having been given the grace to climb that mountain, I feel like the hills aren't so daunting. Mm. But but I can't underestimate them. Got it. I have to be very aware that there's still hills that I have to exert my energy mentally emotionally spiritually yeah. to still you know get over so i have to be aware of that how i did that okay a few ways i'll give some of the practical ways up front and then i'll speak more about the abstract ways or the more complex ways but practically therapy was huge like i just needed to stay close to my therapist as he helped me process some of these bigger things that i just didn't have the energy to do on my own uh so therapy was really big uh, journaling. Uh, I've always been someone that wrote my thoughts often. I, I often tell my kids, if it's important enough for you, write it down. Uh, don't don't leave it to memory because there, there will come a day that you just will have a hard time remembering those moments that were really special to you. So write it down. So journaling was really, really important to me uh, over the course of those months to really put on paper what I wanted to say to God, what I was wrestling through questions that I had, leaving those questions in my journal unanswered, or maybe even answering them as God and God's spirit kind of led me to find answers. 
dialogue, conversation. If, you know, again, if it wasn't happening in my journal, it was happening with someone in yeah. front of me, my wife for the most part, which, you know, she was just a hero in this season for me. I think God really used her as a, as a superhero for me. And then I guess some of the more complex ways were to really almost very aggressively dismantle metrics that I lived by. Metrics that I think were shaped more by the culture, the church Christian culture that surrounded me rather than the metrics that I think God was putting on me. I think I put more expectations on myself and the way I should behave and the way I should even think that I think God is like, I didn't say that. It reminds me a lot of Eve in Genesis where, you know, God tells her, hey, you don't eat of this tree. And then the serpent comes, tests her, and he says, yo, who says that you can't eat from this? She said, God said I shouldn't eat or touch it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, God didn't say that. He didn't say you can't touch it, right? So it's interesting how we oftentimes put restrictions on our freedom and then blame God. And I think Mm -hmm. I was doing that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, I think I adopted some metrics of life that church culture and kind of a Western Christian expression was putting on me that I don't think God was putting on me. So giving myself the permission to say, yo, you could be sloppy in your prayers. You could be aggressive in your prayers. You could be demanding in your prayers or, hey, it's okay to say that you may not want to do this anymore. Don't feel guilty about it. I think it was just more about permission Mm -hmm. and and that expressed itself in a variety of ways. But I think fundamentally it was saying, Finding more freedom in the company of God. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of metrics fell to the wayside as I started to just be more aware of God's company with me. Even when Rich Perez was battling his own anxiety and making tough decisions about closing his church, he depended on the goodness of God to get him through. During a time of fear, he was able to trust that God would heal his body and calm his anxiety. I think there's some wisdom there for us, too. Thank you for joining us. I'm Russell Berry, reminding you that it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. Today's episode was engineered by Kevin Burgess and produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Mary Jo Clark and Jade Gustafson. I'd also like to give a shout out to Londa and Nicole for their help in creating and promoting the Where You're From podcast. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.